Chapter 8, Part 1 of Jesse James, My Father by Jesse James, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Outlawed and Hunted, Part 1 For sixteen years of his life, beginning with 1866 and ending April 3, 1882, when he was killed, my father was outlawed, and police officials and detectives were searching for him everywhere, except in the right place to find him. In these long years he had many thrilling adventures, some amusing ones, and many narrow escapes, none of which have ever been told in print before. Owing to the fact that my father had only two photographs ever taken, and that these were in the hands of his family, and were never seen by those who were searching for him, no correct picture of him was ever printed, and consequently his features were unknown to all except a few, and nearly all of these were loyal friends who could be depended on never to betray him under any circumstances. My father used to live in Kansas City and other cities, and go and come on the busiest streets in broad daylight as any other citizen would, even when a large reward was offered for his capture. Of course, he was in great danger of discovery at all times, and he was always heavily armed. While the officers were hunting for him at one time, there was an agricultural county fair held in Kansas City, and among the prizes offered was one for the best lady's saddle horse, which must be shown in action before the judges at the fair. My father attended this fair and entered his favorite horse, Stonewall, for the prize. In the competition for the prize, Stonewall was ridden by Miss Annie Ralston, and the horse took first prize. At that very moment there was a big reward offered for my father's capture. At another time my father entered a horse in the races at the Jackson, Mississippi Fair. The race was in three heats. My father was quite sure that his was a better horse than any in the race, but in the first heat he failed to win. My father suspected that the jockey was holding the horse in deliberately and for the purpose of making him lose the race, so my father himself rode the horse in the last two heats and won the race and the purse. A year or two after the close of the war, my father and a companion who had been with him in Quantrell's command were riding on horseback through the mountain districts of Tennessee. They stopped for dinner at a house along a country road, and while resting there, learned that the woman of the house was a widow whose husband had also been a guerrilla with Quantrell, and had died a short time before of wounds received in one of the skirmishes of the last days of the war. My father noticed that the widow was very despondent, and he supposed it was because of the death of her husband. He talked to her in a consoling way and she told him that what worried her most just then was that her house and little farm was mortgaged for five hundred dollars. The loan fell due that very day, and she expected the sheriff and the moneylender to come that afternoon and foreclose the mortgage and order her off the place. My father had fought in the same company with her husband in the war. He had five hundred dollars with him, but it was about all he did have, and he was a stranger in a strange land and could not spare the money but he was determined to aid the widow of his old comrade in some way. He said to her, Suppose you had the five hundred dollars to pay the money lender when he came. Would you know how to sign up the papers and get your receipts all correct so there would be no flaw in it? She told him she did. He then gave her five hundred dollars with instructions to be very particular to see that the mortgage was taken up. My father inquired from her the road by which the sheriff and mortgagee would drive out, and then he and his companion bade the woman good-bye and rode away. 
but they did not go far. They dismounted not far from the widow's home and led their horses into the brush and concealed themselves. They saw two men go past in a buggy driving in the direction of the widow's home. In an hour or two, when these two men came driving back over the same road, they were halted by my father and his companion. Are you sheriff so-and-so? Yes. And money-lender so-and-so? Yes. Throw up your hands. The sheriff and the money-lender obeyed and were relieved of the five hundred dollars and then were told to drive on. This act of my father's was certainly open to criticism, but by it the widow's home and farm were saved to her, and my father regained the money which he had to have to continue his journey. I give this as an example of how desperate chances Jesse James would take to aid the widow of a comrade in distress. In the later years of his life, my father stopped at the home of General Joe Shelby in Lafayette County to rest himself and his horse from a long journey. General Shelby had a Negro boy whom he thought a great deal of. This boy was a waif of the war who had drifted into General Shelby's camp during the war to get something to eat, and Shelby had adopted him. This boy had gone that day to a nearby town with a load of firewood to sell. On a former trip to town, this Negro boy had been set upon and beaten by the white boys of the town, and this time he took with him an old army pistol that he had taken from the general's room. When he reached town, the boy set upon him again, and the negro boy pulled out his pistol and shot one of them in a leg. The wounded boy ran away howling, and the other boys followed him. The negro boy knew that the white folks would get after him for this, so he hurriedly unhitched his mules, mounted one of them, and started on a run for General Shelby's house. He was within a mile of the house when a posse of white men on horseback hove in sight on his trail. The boy urged his mule into a faster run and had just reached the gate at the foot of the lane leading to General Shelby's house when the mob caught him, and dragged him from the mule and started away with him. My father had taken one of General Shelby's shotguns and was out beyond in a pasture hunting quail when he saw the mob ride up to the gate. He very naturally supposed that the mob had discovered that he was there and had come after him. He went on a run for the stable to get his horse, but before he reached there he saw the mob riding away with the negro boy. General Shelby was not at home, but his wife was there and she was almost distracted when she saw the mob capture her negro boy and ride away with him. My father declared that he would go and rescue the boy. She begged him not to do it. But he felt in duty bound, as the guest of his friend General Shelby, to protect his servants in his absence, so he saddled his horse and went on a gallop after the mob. There were more than a dozen men in the mob. My father overtook them as they had halted on a high bridge over a creek and were getting ready to lynch the young negro. All of these men were armed, but my father rode right in among them and demanded, What are you going to do with that boy? Lynch him, answered a dozen men in chorus. What has he done? He shot a white boy. The niggers are getting too bold, and we're going to make an example of this one. No, you are not, my father said. That is General Shelby's boy, and I am General Shelby's friend. If that boy has harmed a white man, he must have a fair trial for it. The argument might have lasted longer and become more pointed and animated, but a man in the mob recognized my father and exclaimed, That's Jesse James! The men in the mob grew respectful at once and asked what had better be done. The best thing for you to do is to take this boy to Lexington and turn him over to the sheriff and have him put in jail, and let him get the same sort of a fair trial that a white boy would get. 
That will satisfy General Shelby, it will satisfy me, and it ought to satisfy you. The men in the mob agreed to it, and went to Lexington and did as agreed. My father rode behind them to the outskirts of Lexington, and then rode away. The Negro boy was tried by a jury, and acquitted. Henry Clay Campbell was a soldier in Marmaduke's brigade of Price's army. He surrendered at Shreveport, Louisiana, and returned to his former home in Copper County, Missouri. A man who lived four miles from Butler in Bates County owed Campbell $1,000 since before the war, and at the close of the war, Campbell went there to collect the debt. This man who owed him had been a soldier in the Federal Army, and when Campbell came to collect the $1,000, this rascal set a gang of 15 Federal soldiers upon him to kill him. These soldiers on horseback were pursuing Campbell, who was also on horseback along a country road. My father, Arch Clements, Al Shepard, and two others saw the pursuit, and they ambushed themselves near the road, and as the Federals rushed by, six of them were shot and killed, and the rest gave up the chase of Campbell and escaped. As narrow an escape as my father ever had from capture was in the seventies when he and a companion were riding through Jackson County one warm day in August. They had been riding all day and were tired and dusty when they came to the Little Blue River, and decided to halt there and take a plunge bath. They tied their horses in the brush, undressed, and left their clothing on the bank and plunged into the water. They were in the water up to their necks and were talking to each other and never dreaming of danger, when suddenly from the bank came the stern command, Throw up your hands! Jesse James and his companion turned their heads quickly, and there on the bank was standing a man with a double-barreled shotgun to his shoulders and the two muzzles pointing fair at the men in the water. There was nothing for the two naked men to do but to obey the command, and up went their hands. It was the first and only time my father ever put up his hands at the command of anyone, and it was the first and only time that he was ever captured. This time he was caught, sure enough. His clothing and revolvers were on the river bank behind the determined-looking man with the shotgun. "'Come out here,' was the next command. There was not time to form a plan of operation, but my father and his companion were used to surprises and to the necessity of quick action. Experienced together in different tight places had sharpened their wits so that each almost divined what was going on in the mind of the other, and without either having spoken a word to the other, they acted in concert on a plan of escape. At the command of the man behind the shotgun, my father waded slowly ashore, talking and arguing all the time with the man on the bank to distract and confuse him. The other man stayed in the water with his hands above his head, watching father and the man with the shotgun. My father walked up the bank, demanding earnestly all the while to know why two gentlemen enjoying a quiet bath after a day's horseback ride should be disturbed in this rude manner. As soon as my father reached the side of the man on the bank, his companion, who was in the water, gave a shrill war-whoop and dived beneath the surface. This shrill yell so surprised and disconcerted the man with the shotgun that he turned his head quickly away from my father and looked at the man in the water. That was the chance my father had been waiting for. Quick as a flash, he sprang upon the man, grabbing his shotgun and him at the same time, and they rolled over in the weeds, locked together in a fierce wrestling match. They had hardly grappled each other before the man in the water was out and got hold of one of his own revolvers, and the rest of it was easy. The man turned out to be a country constable who was out hunting for horse thieves. 
He came upon the two horses in the brush and jumped at the conclusion that the two men in the water were horse thieves and determined to capture them. He never once suspected who the men really were that he had captured. My father dipped his shotgun in the water so it could not be fired, took away all his ammunition, and gave him a good ducking in the blue and let him go his way. My grandmother was greatly harassed in these times by detectives who came to her home searching for my father. She learned to suspect every stranger who came there and to be very wary in her talks with them. At one time during the war, Fletcher Taylor and eight guerrillas who were traveling through Clay County near her home were very tired and hungry. They knew of only one house to which they might safely go and ask for food, and that was my grandmother's. Taylor had been there before with my father, and he supposed, of course, that my grandmother would recognize him and it would be all right. It was late at night when he and his eight companions rode up to the house and knocked at the door. My grandmother inquired from within, Who is there? It is Fletcher Taylor and eight gorillas, Mrs. Samuels. We are very hungry. In those perilous times, Federal soldiers often went in the guise of guerrillas to the homes of Southern patriots and asked for food or water, and if it was given them, the people who gave it were reported and punished for giving aid and sustenance to the rebels. So my grandmother was very suspicious and cautious. I don't know you, she said. Go away and do not bother me. But I am Fletcher Taylor, who was here with your son Jesse. That is a good lie. I never saw or heard tell of Fletcher Taylor, she answered. But don't you remember, Mrs. Samuels, the good gooseberry pie and clean pair of socks that you gave me? My grandmother knew then that it was all right, and she threw open the door and prepared a meal for the hungry soldiers. One time after the war, my father was at home and was lying on the floor reading a book, when his mother discovered three men coming up on horseback. She called to my father, he got up and looked out the window, and saw that it was the sheriff. He went out the back door, and as he went, my grandmother said to him, my dear boy, if it is necessary, fight till you die. Do not surrender. She gave him that advice because a little before that time, two men who had been with Quantrell were arrested and put in jail at Richmond, and a mob had taken them out and hanged them. My father got to his horse and was so closely chased that he had to turn in his saddle and shoot the collar off the sheriff's neck. That ended the pursuit. End of Chapter 8, Part 1